The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson, Face the Nation. In 1952, President Truman faced a crisis against an implacable ideological global foe bent on the destruction of the West and its slothful libertine ways. Americans were anxious about the communist threat and the potential nuclear consequences, ducking and covering against an attack that might hit them at home. They even made videos about it at school. There was a turtle by the name of Bert, and Bert the turtle was very alert. When danger threatened him, he never got hurt. He knew just what to do. He ducked and cover, ducked and cover. He did what we all must learn to do. You and you and you and you. Any inconvenience that thwarted a president's solemn duty to protect Americans against the perceived threat had to be vaulted over, stomped down, or dispensed with quickly. The president was a man of action. The buck stops here, read the plate on his desk, so when the steel company bosses and union workers couldn't come to an agreement in 1952 in the spring in April, the president stepped in, seizing the steel companies, raising the American flag over the furnaces and producing the tin to keep the vegetables for the dinner table fresh and to keep fresh the supply of bombs raining down on the North Koreans. The move set off a predictable and bitter battle between the branches of government. In Beach the Bastard, said the Republicans. In Congress, Democrats too said the same. The judges also tried to stop the president. It was one of the boldest, most controversial decisions of the Truman presidency and one of the greatest modern uses of executive power. And how it all played out comes next. Our whistle stop today is April 24th. 1952, and the United States District Court Judge David A. Pine is questioning administration lawyer Attorney General Holmes Baldridge over the extent of the president's powers to keep the American people safe. Judge Pine, so you contend the executive has unlimited power in an emergency. Baldridge, he has the power to take such action as is necessary to meet the emergency. Judge Pine, if the emergency is great, it is unlimited, is it? Baldridge, I suppose if you carry it to its logical conclusion, that's true. Judge Pine, and that the executive determines the emergencies and the courts cannot even review whether it is an emergency. Baldridge, that is correct. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? In the Truman case, the argument was that the power is absolute. The Trump team in 2017 argued the same when defending the executive order, banning immigration from seven countries and shutting off the flow of refugees from Syria. Where the two differ was on the idea of whether or not the judge had a duty or standing to adjudicate the issue. Since Marbury versus Madison, federal courts have had the authority to invalidate government actions that ran afoul of the U.S. Constitution. That's why the courts are there. But this is how the Trump team argued it. They said that to question the president, quote, harms the public by thwarting enforcement of an executive order issued by the nation's elected representative. That would be the president. Quote, and second guesses the president's national security judgment. The brief also went on to say that, quote, judicial second guessing of the president's national security determination in itself imposes substantial harm on the federal government and the nation at large. The court is hurting the country, was the argument in 2017. Before any conversation about presidential power, we must reset the norms. That keeps presidents from deciding that they are facing unprecedented attacks by another branch of the government, whether it be Congress or the judiciary or the press, which is not a branch of the government, but is a protected 
part of American society. This is why we study history, to determine whether we are in new territory and someone is really being wronged, or whether the strain of the moment simply is the strain built into the system. If it's the latter, then the aggrieved president, his supporters, and those who want to see him undone should pause, breathe, stop, drop, and roll. The sky is not falling. The system was designed this way. It was designed to have the pushing and the pulling so that no one got away with too much power or oppressed the minority or did emergency and rash things in the passion of the moment. For our current president, who seeks bold experimentation in the tradition of some of our greatest presidents, that phrase coming from FDR, then he should expect, in fact, as proof of his greatness, that the system would fight back. When Frodo decided to go through the mines of Moria, he didn't, he didn't start caterwauling when he was trekking through the sloggy, tough bits. That was the path he had chosen. He knew it was going to be hard. Were he the kind of person to blanch from a tough road once chosen, he wouldn't have been the kind of person to be chosen to put on the road in the first place. It was his steady, placid equanimity in the face of ill-shaped arrows coming at his head, a cave troll, and the warming roar of the Balrog that made him into a hero. He didn't sit down and mope into his lambus bread, that the pathway that he had chosen was too rough. So to claim that the fighting back of the system is somehow unfair, unprecedented, or unusual misunderstands history and misunderstands the system as it was designed to go even further and deny the legitimate struggle of the different branches, to forget that the struggle was literally written into the founding of the country. That's a step even further and suggests an unfamiliarity with the design of the system itself, a system which a chief executive who's going to take it the country in a new direction needs to know about. When you're headed in that new uncharted territory, it gives comfort to people that you have a working familiarity with the limitations of power in the American system. Because if you're going to a new place, people might assume and hope that you understand those limitations and therefore you won't go too far. That'll keep them from being nervous. The Constitution has given each president and Congress an invitation to struggle as as Edwin Corwin calls it, an invitation to struggle for the privilege of directing American foreign policy. I find stability for all of this argument that I've just given in uh, the American National Security Policy and Process by Amos Jordan, William Taylor, and Lawrence Korb, and they are in turn citing Edwin Corwin's The President, Office, and Power, 1787 to 1957, and obviously J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. The Korean War in 1950, which is a part of what our steel seizure story is about today, was itself an assertion of executive power. On June 25, 1950, nearly seven divisions of elite North Korean troops crossed the border into South Korea with the intention of conquering the entire country in a few weeks. At first, the offensive was a big success. No good news was coming over the wire into the official offices in Washington. President Harry Truman and his top advisors gave a lot of material to photographers who take those grainy black and white photographs of serious men looking serious around a table. They worried that the Russians were behind the invasion, that North Korea was just a Russian pawn, or was it an attempt to draw the West off sides and distract them from communist moves in other countries? Truman and his men decided that the United States, along with the United Nations, would draw a line against the communist aggression in Korea to contain the spread of communism worldwide. The war would test whether the United States and the United Nations, with the far superior technology and weaponry, could win when the terrain and the enemy were more tenacious. It did not go well. If the best minds in the world had set out to find us the worst possible location to fight this damnable war politically and militarily, the unanimous choice would have been Korea, 
Secretary of State Acheson said years after the war was over. That's from David Halberstam's The Coldest Winter, America and the Korean War. When Harry Truman had decided to join the Korean War, he had not consulted Congress. That's because he wasn't calling it war at all. He was calling it an emergency action. And so, therefore, forever in his diaries and memoirs later, he would always refer to it as the Korean emergency. So, Truman has taken this action in Korea, this emergency action, and we should put it briefly in the context of, of emergency presidential actions, since we're, we are talking about the power of the presidency to meddle in foreign policy. It starts right away. In, 19, in 1793, George Washington asserted the prerogative of the president to act unilaterally in a time of crisis by issuing, without congressional consultation, a neutrality proclamation in the renewed Franco-British War. Then in 1812, Madison lost to war hawks that essentially set the stage for war against England in 1812. In 1846, President Polk basically hemmed Congress in by placing American troops along the Rio Grande. Lincoln obviously expanded the whole damn thing with a series of range of different presidential actions invoking the notion of a, quote, war power as derived from his uh, the commander-in-chief clause of the Article II of the Constitution. And is that's really the, the locus of the argument that executive power grows out of national emergency and national self-preservation. It was seen, that alone was seen as sufficient justification for presidential action. On Lincoln's part, and then, of course, Roosevelt got around an isolationist Congress at first by claiming expanding presidential power for himself. And then, of course, when the war hit, he could blow open the power given to the president. And what happens after the Second World War, though, is a switch or a change to how presidents would assert their powers, because... There was now an ideological foe in a way that there hadn't been. So if you really got the fires of paranoia stoking and really burning hot, you could make an ideological battle and make it anything an immediate threat. So in any sense, any specific clash of arms, if you plugged it into that larger ideological struggle for the control of the planet, could become an existential threat to the country. So that is, of course, an advance of the idea of terrorism. If you see the manifestation of terrorism as a clash of civilizations, Islam versus the West, then any leading edge in an effort to throw over the West by that ideology, which is in part what many of the followers of Osama bin Laden believed, which is that this is a struggle between ideologies and religions, uh, then, then any place where that ideology can make an inroad is an inroad for that larger, big attack. So you can take, if you're rhetorically nimble enough, you can make any action into a huge existential threat. And so then it's up to the courts, as they did in the case of uh, President Trump's executive order banning travel from specific countries. It's up to the courts to then decide whether the, the, the danger is real and present. That was true, obviously, uh, in Truman's case as well. Of course, in Truman's case, when he seizes the steel companies, it's in 1952. The war with Korea has been going on since 1950. But this overarching ideological battle is what's so important because it, it is a ready source of energy for any argument you want to make. And of course, the argument about capitalism versus communism, it's the struggle of the day. It's a bigger struggle, an hourly struggle, than than the struggle going on right now, uh, which was a part of President Trump's argument for his executive order. His political and ideological argument for his executive order is there is a struggle against radical Islam, and we must do everything we can to stop those attacks. 
And his executive order was a part of that larger argument. The bigger argument, of course, going on in German's time is you had the Red Scare of the late 40s, early 50s. You had MacArthur. Uh, you, sorry, you, well, you, had, you did have MacArthur in 1951, but you had McCarthy, uh, Joe McCarthy, um, trying to root out communists in America when, when Truman fired MacArthur because of uh, his criticisms in Korea in 1951. Uh, MacArthur said the son of a bitch ought to be impeached, talking about Truman. The global ideological struggle was also not just for in specific theaters, but it was for prestige and support for an argument about a system. So to the extent that the West succeeded, it was an argument, not, it was not just they succeeded specifically in Korea, it was an argument for the success of the Western system. And obviously the opposite was true. If there were failures in communism, it was because there was a failure in the actual system itself. And so this idea of the steel strike goes to the heart of the success of the capitalist system. If the capitalist system couldn't work on an agreement between labor and capital sufficient for the production of arms necessary for a war the country was engaged in, boy, that was a blow to the U.S. international argument for capitalism. I mean, you couldn't even get your act together when you're fighting a war. That must be how screwed up capitalism is. Later, the U.S. would say, uh, after Reagan, that it crippled communism by exhausting its industrial capacity. Essentially, Moscow couldn't keep up with the the Cold War and also keep its people happy. So in 1952, though, there was a version of that that was at stake here in the Truman case with the steel companies. Truman's leadership vision, we should also, of course, mention before getting into the specifics of the case, The buck stops here. We know that. He once said that a leader is a person who has the ability to get others to do what they don't want to do and like it. He was very straightforward, unlike FDR, who was kind of wily and pitted one uh, advisor against another. Truman didn't like the highfalutin types. He didn't like the brass hats at the military, and he didn't like the striped pants at the State Department. He was the only modern president without a, a higher education But he was a reader of history and admired strong leaders like Cincinnatus and Cato and George Washington. A sort of straightforward, this is what I want kind of guy. So the steel crisis, which is at the center of this act of uh, executive action, had been percolating for a while. Driven by the demands of the war, the mills were producing at a record pace and profits were coming alongside that production. The steel workers, though, unlike the workers in the auto and the electrical industries, had not had a pay raise since 1950. November of 1951, 650,000 steel workers called, basically said they were going to strike if they didn't get a little extra something in their pay packet. They wanted 35 cents an hour. Management refused to negotiate. The union gave notice that they would strike on the 31st of December. On December 22nd, Truman, uh, this is December 22nd, 1951, Truman referred the dispute to the Wage Stabilization Board. And as a result of that, the union said, okay, we'll let you work it out through the Wage Stabilization Board and we'll stay on until April 8th. Now, this is important because he could have used something called the Taft-Hartley law, which was a piece of legislation that had to do with collective bargaining. Truman's argument was that the Wage Stabilization Board was a wartime measure, and this was a wartime effort, and therefore it was the better venue to dis- to adjudicate this d- dispute. So there were weeks of hearings. The Wage Stabilization Board recommended an hourly raise of 26 cents, so that's, n- that's a nine cents less than the union guys wanted. 
Uh, But the union agreed to the Wage Stabilization Board ruling, and the companies, though, denounced it. (laughs) They said it was unreasonable. The only way in which they would take that deal was if they could have a a $12 a ton increase in the price of steel. Negotiators continued, and it deadlock. So David McCullough writes in his biography of Truman, with the April deadline approaching, the country, as said in the press, was caught, quote, squarely on the griddle. To Truman, the pay increase proposed by the Wage Stabilization Board seemed both fair and reasonable. Now, why was steel so important? Well, okay, we talked about Korea. There's an ongoing war. Uh, But also, the U.S. steel plants supplied U.S. allies as well. Plus, it supplied uh, the nuclear program that was ongoing in this battle against the communists. And that that clip at the beginning, the duck and cover clip from schools, that's from 1950. So in 1952, the idea that we that the United States is in a life and death struggle on the nuclear front with the Soviets is in the re- that's in the real conversation. That was another reason you needed steel, and also you got to build up U- U.S. NATO force uh, NATO forces in Europe because that's where Russia might be making its other plays. So you have to confront and contain communism in North Korea, but you don't want to lose your mind and miss what might be happening in Europe. So you need NATO to be supplied with steel, and you need steel in North Korea, and you need steel for your nuclear program. uh, Secretary of Defense Lovett, Truman would later write, said emphatically that any stoppage of steel production for even a short period of time would increase the risk we had taken in the stretch out of the armament program. He also pointed out that our entire combat technique in all three services depended on the fullest use of our industrial facilities. Stressing the situation in Korea, he said that, quote, we are holding the line with ammunition and not with the lives of our troops. Any curtailment of steel production, he warned, would endanger the lives of our fighting men. So, basically, this is this argument of men versus machines. And there I was quoting from McCullough. Love it was arguing essentially, give us all the steel so we don't have to replace it with bodies. This is the uh, the idea in the Korean War was that the superior mechanical benefits of, of the Western military operation could defeat the Koreans, North Koreans. So if you believe that, then you don't want your ace in the hole to go quiet. Can an ace in the hole go quiet? I don't believe it can, but you know what I mean. You don't want your major force that's going to win you the war to peter out when the when the uh, furnaces at the steel plants go cool. Uh, you know, Korea is, I think, it's forgot, It's considered the forgotten war. Truman referred to it once as a police action. But in reading about it, there was real worry at the time that um, not just with respect to the communism versus capitalism, but that it might escalate into World War III, given the hair-trigger feelings of both the U.S. and the Soviets. So you have a labor versus union fight going on, and just a tiny bit of background to remember where things are in the union uh, labor narrative. During the 30s, labor was the hero. It was uh, The Wagner Act was passed in, the, in 1935 to address the abuses of labor by capital. But then after the war, the pendulum started swinging the other way. You remember in 1946, Truman takes on the miners, unions and railroad unions, um, People are getting kind of fed up of the fed up with the unions. Uh, in 1947, there were 73 bills in the House restricting the power of organized labor. Uh, in the states, there were right to work efforts made. So by 1952, the unions are in more of a struggle than they had been, and there are strikes going on frequently. 
Truman is of two minds about the union. We, of course, he'd been put on the ticket because union labor said he was okay. But then he took on John Lewis in 1946, as we've already recounted in one of the Whistlestop episodes. And, and remember, in 1946, he'd written that speech in which he was, was about to publicly advocate for the hanging of union leaders. He wrote to his wife, people are somewhat befuddled and want a life guarantee of, the, of rest at government expense. And some, some just want to raise hell and hamper the return to peacetime production to gain some political advantage. So that's Truman, on the one hand, being pretty rough on the, on the labor leaders. We, we remember what he said that was even, in fact, rougher. But then later in life, he would say this in his memoirs. I believe many well-meaning citizens fail to realize that for the working man, the union is far more than a means of securing higher wages. In this age of the machine, the individual worker does not get much of a chance to feel that what he is doing is important. The union worker, like anyone else, wants to feel that he is achieving something. And through his unions, he gets the sense of human dignity and of joining with others in doing something worthwhile. That is why he resists any tampering with unions. So that's, that's more of the mindset that uh, Truman had in his 52 spat, which is essentially with the steel companies, versus his 46 spat, which is with the unions. Here is Truman in his memoirs talking about the steel companies. The profits of the steel companies were constantly rising. The nation was drafting its men to serve on the field of battle, and I thought that the ammunition and arms manufacturers and their raw material producers ought not to use the emergency to insist on extra profits. The attitude of the companies seemed wrong to me, since under the accelerated defense program, the government was by far the biggest consumer of steel and steel products. To hike the prices at this time meant charging the government more for the tools of defense. Steel is of such importance in our highly mechanized economy that any rise in the price of steel is soon reflected in the price increases of a large number of goods, from refrigerators and automobiles to tin cans and bobby pins. A disproportionate rise in the cost of steel would have an inflationary effect. This little last bit matters, of course, because he's still trying to manage, gently, gently, coming out of the Second World War. Everybody believed that a huge economic crash was in the offing because all of the measures that were uh, that had stabilized the economy, well, and all the emergency activity that had taken place in response to the war effort had to be unwound. And just everybody assumed it was going to be a huge crack up in the coming out. So any uh, ideas about inflation were were a blow to perhaps the the, the central health of the economy. So we've looked at Truman's differing minds on the uh, idea of the unions. He's on the side of the steel companies here. And so in March of 1952, he's still working it out. He's got till that April deadline. And he's still trying to work out something with the unions and the companies. But in March of 1952, he got in a very public spat with Charles E. Wilson, who was the former president of General Electric and Truman's director of uh, the defense mobilization. Now, why that was important because it had control of the entire U.S. economy. It rationed raw materials to the civilian economy, and the position was so powerful that the press began referring to Wilson as the co-president. He had been accused of backing big business, of course, because he was from General Electric, and he got into a huge dispute with the Truman's Wage Stabilization Board after it recommended the wage increase for unionized steelworkers. So here's what happened. Truman hands it over to the Wage Stabilization Board. They come up with that agreement. Truman tells Wilson or Wilson thinks, that Truman has told him, I'm on your side. I'm on the side of the steel companies. I think they should be allowed to raise prices in response to this $0.26 cent an hour 
wage increase. But then Truman thinks, no, Wilson overread their conversation. Wilson thinks he's been backtracked on when uh, Truman says he doesn't want to see a price increase from the from the steel companies. Truman, uh, Wilson thinks that Truman's just giving in to the unions, and Wilson resigns and prints his letter, in which he basically accuses Truman of giving in to the pressure groups of the unions. Truman then has to respond to Wilson in the papers, and in it, he, he reads, it's a longer letter than you would expect, because he's trying to explain himself against this charge that basically he's given in to the unions. And his letter back to Wilson reads like one of those email chains where everybody's mixed the signals. Here's Truman. As far as steel prices are concerned, it is true that I agreed as to a, quote, possible necessity, unquote, of allowing some price increase. However, I understood the necessity for doing this was to be thoroughly explored in your talks with steel companies and otherwise before a final decision was reached on this matter. Essentially, Wilson had thought, you know, Truman was going to go along with what he believed. And Truman thought, well, I provisionally agree with you, but there's got to be more negotiation. Anyway, a big dust up on the eve of the April 8th deadline. In the final week before the April 8th deadline, the steel plants were a rattling engine of productivity. They were operating at peak capacity, setting new daily and weekly records for production to meet civilian and military demands. But on April 8th, 1952, the steel workers struck because there was no agreement. In Cleveland, 800 employees on the day shift of the Bolt and Nut Division of Republic Steel went on strike in the morning. But then Truman stepped in and seized ownership of the steel company so that by noon, when the second shift started, eight hours later, the bolts and nuts were making their usual way down the line. Picket lines melted in front of the Jones and Laughlin Steel Company, wrote a paper which pointed out that it was a great relief for union families because, quote, for women folk, a strike would have meant difficult days. There would have been no Easter clothes for many. Groceries would have been scarce. Still, the country lost a million tons of production in the short time because plants lining both sides of the Monongahela River had banked their furnaces in anticipation of the strike. And those furnaces had to be reheated. Banked is a word that comes across in all these clips about this event. The word banking is... Basically, I, as near as I can tell, it means essentially covering the fire with ashes or um, basically snuffing out the fire to reduce the combustion rate. And I think the idea is that, you know, when you bank a fire, or <laughs> there I am just using it, when you snuff a fire out with the ashes, the, the fuel is still there, which is to say the, the logs are still there to be burned later. Uh, but anyway. Some production was lost from the cooling down of the furnaces. From his reading of history, Truman was convinced his action fell within his powers as president and commander-in-chief. In a state of national emergency, Lincoln had suspended the right to habeas corpus, as Truman would often point out. In fact, here is Truman in his own memoirs. When there is danger that is that a vital portion of the economy will be crippled at a time that is critical to the nation's security, then in my opinion, the president has a clear duty to take steps to protect the nation. Must a government of necessity, Lincoln once asked, be too strong for the liberties of its people or too weak to maintain its own existence? History has recorded Lincoln's answer in his deeds. That's Truman writing. But was it legal? Well, Tom Clark, who was a... Keep in mind here as I go through this little riff about... Remember Abe Fortas got in trouble uh, in our last episode for having conversations with... 
Lyndon Johnson. It was seen as a breach of the separation of powers, that um, there would be any conversations between a member of the Supreme Court and the executive because one day the member of the Supreme Court might have to rule on something the executive had done. Well, Tom Clark, who was on the Supreme Court, had once as attorney general told Truman that as president, uh, faced with a, a strike of the kind that he was faced uh, with, that he had inherent powers to prevent a paralysis of the national economy. Truman's legal advisor also supported that idea. And so also significantly did Fred Vinson, the chief justice. The chief justice had confidently advised Truman that on legal grounds, he could go ahead and seize the mills. Of course, the chief justice was not supposed to be advising the president. And that was particularly improper in this instance, since a seizure of the steel industry was bound to be challenged. And Vincent was going to have to weigh in on the case, which he, of course, did. But uh, out of friendship and loyalty, much like with um, Abe Fortas, Vincent offered his advice and, and Truman took it to heart. And so in the end, Truman decided, quote, the president has the power to keep the country from going to hell. So with Executive Order 10340, Truman ordered the Secretary of Commerce, Charles Sawyer, to seize the steel mills and operate them from the government. The plants represented 95% of the country's capacity, producing about 105 million tons a year. Truman that night on the 8th of April gave a radio address. And here it is. My fellow Americans, tonight our country faces a grave danger. We are faced by the possibility that at midnight tonight, the steel industry will be shut down. This must not happen. Steel is our key industry. It is vital to the defense effort. It is vital to peace. We do not have a stockpile of the kinds of steel we need for defense. Steel is flowing directly to the plants that make it into defense production. Truman continues in this radio address, and I'll just do Truman so we don't have to wait for him to uh, paw through his, uh, or I should say pad through. He may pad and paw um, through the rest of his remarks. He continued later. He said, these are not normal times. These are times of crisis. We have been working and fighting to prevent the outbreak of world war. There's that World War III echo in there. So far, we have succeeded. The most important element in this successful struggle has been our defense system. If that is stopped, the situation can change overnight. All around the world, we face the threat of military action by the forces of aggression. Our growing strength is holding these forces in check. If our strength fails, these forces may break out in renewed violence and bloodshed. Therefore, I am taking two actions tonight. First, I am directing the Secretary of Commerce to take possession of the steel mills and to keep them operating. Second, I am directing the Acting Director of Defense Mobilization to get the representatives of the steel companies and the steel workers down here to Washington at the earliest date in a renewed effort to get them to settle their dispute. Now, we get into the reaction phase here, and what's interesting is two days after, and the reaction phase is important uh, because, A, we, when you think about the response to our current politics, it's always uh, fun to see just uh, how whether people have changed the way they react, whether they reacted more strongly in the past than they do today. One reaction was two days after the seizure on the 8th of April, the Senate unanimously approved the war powers, extending the war powers that Truman had as a result of the war powers granted to the president in the wake of the Second World War. But they specifically limited in those emergency war powers, they put in the legislation a new provision that was added to explicitly prevent the president from having the authority, or, or it explicitly cabined his authority, to use a cliche of our modern debate, it cabined his authority 
and did not allow him to seize any private property except public utilities. So this is Congress basically saying you can't do what you just did two days ago. That's an important when we get to the separation of powers debate that'll be a part of the court cases. Interestingly, we had lots of charges of fake news at the time. Truman argued that the, the steel companies had a $2.5 billion profit. And the steel company says, that's crazy. You're totally monkeying with the numbers. And the, and the press went and did a lot of math to try to figure out whether the president was telling the truth. And in one of the accounts of this inability to come up with, a, with the um, figure, I mean, not they could come up with the figure, but they couldn't come up with the math that got the president to that $2.5 billion dollar number. And here's uh, one of the papers. In fact, the price agency was curiously reluctant to discuss the figure at all yesterday. Earlier in the day, it promised to issue a statement giving a detailed analysis of its version of steel industry profits. But apparently thinking better of the idea, it canceled the plan to issue a statement. So basically, Truman is making up his own numbers and they can't support it. On April 17th, Nine days after the seizure, Truman was um, at a newspaper editor's association meeting, and he was asked if he thought that he had the power to seize the newspapers, too, in a crisis. And his answer was vague, but his meaning was quite clear. Here's one of the newspaper editors. He meant he could take over the papers, radio, and everything else. If that isn't on the edge of totalitarianism, I don't know what is. As a result, the Press Association voted a resolution to condemn the president's seizure of the steel industry and declare that the press would, quote, resist and defeat any attempt to seize any attempted seizure by the president of the press. In Congress, the reaction was even more heated. Stiles Bridges, who was the GOP majority leader, called it, quote, the gravest constitutional crisis since the Civil War. Taft, Senator Taft, you remember him from the 1952 Republican nomination, he called Truman's impeachment. He called for Truman's impeachment. And so did an editorial in the Chicago Daily Tribune, which will give a, uh, get its last licks in here at the end of our episode. Senator Byrd of Virginia, a Democrat, announced that he was a, quote, true Democrat and, quote, not a Truman Democrat in denouncing the move by Truman. The chairman of the Ford Motor Company in a speech to the Michigan Schoolmasters Club said the president's action disavows the principle of economic freedom, which has been basic to much of our material progress. The moralists got involved too. President Truman proclaimed the medieval, quote, divine right of kings in a new dress when he seized the steel industry with, quote, the tyranny of executive fiat. That's from Dr. James W. Fifield. Jr. He was asserting that before a meeting of the Allied Trades Conference, Baker's Forum at the Huntington Hotel. Mr. Fifield, founder president of Spiritual Mobilization and Minister of the First Congressional Church of Los Angeles, also said, I cannot believe that Americans will permit government officials to take private property without legal, constitutional, or moral right. This latest manifestation of unlimited executive power ought to make it crystal clear to any thinking person that the very existence of our republic is at stake. Although the president was not without his defenders, the all-democratic city council of Pittsburgh thanked the president for seizing the steel companies. One other Senate action, which I forgot, the Senate voted to try to cut off the money to the president to keep, that he was using to keep the steel plants going, and they failed by four votes. Okay, so now to the court process here. So the steel companies seek a preliminary injunction on the grounds that the president had acted without legal authority. So the question at hand was whether the president could, in an emergency, order his secretary of commerce to seize and control the steel company, uh, steel industry in order to solve the labor dispute at a time of war. 
So the delegation by Congress of this power is a key idea here. And what makes this different than the Trump case is that in the Trump case, the White House could point to a law that gave the president power over the issuing of visas. What was the issue in the Trump case was whether the way in which he carried out that charge was constitutional and ran afoul of the Constitution in other ways. But it wasn't whether he had so much the authority to act in the visa realm with respect to national security. That wasn't what they were debating. But, which is to say, just because Congress gives the president authority to do something doesn't mean he can gallop all over the other parts of the Constitution. In the Truman case, it was a little different. Judge David Pine, you remember him from the lead here, Judge David Pine, the district court judge, asked the government's man, Baldridge, when a sovereign people adopted the Constitution, it enumerated the powers set up in the Constitution, but limited the powers of the Congress and limited the powers of the judiciary. But it did not limit the powers of the executive. Is that what you say? In other words, why would they have limited the other branches and not the executive, he asked Baldridge. And Baldridge replied, that is the way we read Article 2 of the Constitution. So Pine ruled that the seizure was unconstitutional and ordered the return of the mills to private ownership. The unions started to walk out. But then on the 30th of April, day later, the United States Court of Appeals stayed the effect of the judge's ruling, enabling the government to, uh, to appeal the ruling of the Supreme Court, and the strike was called off at the president's request. So in the Trump case, uh, when U.S. District Court James Robart issued his order, effectively forcing the Department of Homeland Security to suspend the ban, the Court of Appeals then affirmed the district court judge's ruling. In this case, the Court of Appeals did not affirm the ruling. It basically st- stayed the effect of the order, which was to say left the left Truman's ownership of the steel companies in place and then kicked it up to the Supreme Court. So while that's going on, we're now basically at the end of April and steel company and union representatives are meeting at the White House to talk about this notion of raises, uh, raising wages and raising prices. And so basically it's now in the Supreme Court And on the May 12th and 13th, industry and government lawyers are arguing before the Supreme Court. A brief aside here, because we're in an age where there is some complaint about the press and whether it is an enemy of the people. Here's what Truman writes about the press at the time. It seems to me that there have been few instances in history where the press was more sensational or partisan than its handling of the steel seizure. What was more disturbing was what amounted to editorial intervention by the press of America in a case pending before the Supreme Court of the United States. News stories and editorials decrying seizure and inflaming public opinion were prejudging and deciding the case at the very time the court itself was hearing arguments for both sides. The steel companies bought full-page advertisements and ran them in newspapers throughout the country to denounce the president of the United States. Large sums of money were spent to influence public opinion against the government. The Supreme Court heard the argument and disagreed with the proposition that the Constitution granted unlimited power to the chief executive. In Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company versus Sawyer, by 6-3, to three, the court affirmed the district court's ruling and held that the seizure was invalid. Justice Black's majority opinion rejected the theory of the Truman theory of executive power, noting that, quote, in the framework of our Constitution, the president's power to see that the laws are faithfully executed refutes the idea that he is to be a lawmaker. Now, wait, what are you talking about? talking about lawmaker. He's talking about keeping the country safe. Keep the country safe. That's what he's talking about. No, says Justice Black. 
He says this is a conflict between the Congress's power and the president's power. And when the president seizes his power in this way, he becomes a lawmaker. And that's not his job. That's not his role. This is about keeping everybody in their lanes. Justice Robert Jackson, who authored an influential concurrence, evaluated the claims of presidential power with respect to congressional authorization. In other words, it's about separation of powers. Nobody has an absolute power. We're judging who has what kind of power. Where is certain power circumscribed? Where does it belong to other people? Where in the specific case has the power been written down by Congress and you're overstepping it? So the president's authority was it at its maximum, said Jackson, when Congress gave, it authoriz- gave the president authorization. But when the president acted against the express or implied will of Congress, then the president's power is at its, quote, lowest ebb. That's what was determined in this case, because Congress had considered and rejected seizing property as a means of settling labor disputes. They'd already adjudicated this question. So when Truman had acted, he was acting essentially against the express decision by Congress. Now, Congress, not on this question of steel, but they had a, they had thought through, should there be a process where a president gets to do this? And they had, in a previous instance, said no. And in fact, Jackson went all the way back to the framers, who, he said, quote, knew what emergencies were and knew how they afforded a ready pretext for usurpation. Aha. So, you see, the founders were smart enough to know that, hey, in an emergency, the executive might try to seize power. So, we better, uh, other than allowing the Congress the ability to suspend the writ of habeas corpus in times of rebellion or invasion, they didn't provide emergency powers allowing for the suspension of liberties. Because they knew that it would have to be worked out, that you would, it wasn't like they thought that everything was going to be smooth as glass all the time, but they knew that it had to be worked out, and so they wouldn't enumerate powers to the president in emergencies. And if they had wanted to, they would have. And so Jackson wrote, I do not think that we rightfully may so amend their work by granting these powers to Truman. By the way, if you want to do some good reading on the growth of the power of the presidency over time, I recommend reading The Cult of the Presidency by Gene Healy. As for the Trump decision in terms of Jackson's concurrence in Youngstown, it was within what Jackson defined as the first tier. In it, he suggested that a president's authority is at its maximum when Congress has given authority, and, there, there, and Congress has given the president authority over visas. Again, though, in the, Truman, in the Trump case, there were other issues at stake, not the issue of whether the president had simply the authority to do what he did. Well, this initiated a whole set of things, didn't it? June 2nd, Hugo Black says this seizure order cannot stand, so the union calls for another strike. By June 9th, negotiations collapse. Truman goes in front of Congress and asks for a law permitting for seizure of the steel industry. The Senate rejects the proposal and says, just use Taft-Hartley. Taft-Hartley had an 80-day no-strike injunction provision. The reason Truman hadn't used it on April 8th was he thought... The unions have already been on pause since December 31st at my request. I'm not going to make them wait another 80 days. Anyway, he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't take up Taft-Hartley. And the strike continues. And meanwhile, by the way, while the strike's continuing, his defense secretary is going bonkers. Like June 24th, he meets with uh, a bunch of newspaper um, editors and just is going crazy. He said the military program is being is grinding to a halt. All the signs show very great grave danger ahead. This is Lovett, the defense secretary. This is a creeping catastrophe. The public living in its shadow may have become used to it, but there is no enemy that could have inflicted the damage that this that has been done. This is a calamity. 
Let's make no mistake about it. No enemy nation could have so crippled our production as this work stoppage. No form of bombing could have taken out of production in one day 380 steel plants and kept them out nearly two months. It's a darn sight worse than any bombing raids ever launched anywhere. The weird and tragic thing is that we've done this to ourselves. Whether it's murder committed by someone else or suicide by ourselves, the effect is the same. It hurts, and we'll hurt increasingly. It's bad. Definitely bad. I tell you, gentlemen, Mr. Lovett broke out at one point in the, in the uh, nearly one-hour uninterrupted stream to the press. It's a bitter pill for me to swallow when we had gotten off to a good start. The winter and spring were, were spent in getting ready to roll. The acceleration of the summer's production was what we had counted on. Now it's out the window. So all that's going on. The Secretary of Defense is going nuts And yet Truman won't change things. I mean, he won't basically give in and use Taft-Hartley. You know, this was not an unforeseen emergency. And uh, basically, the original decision by the court was that the president had ignored the judgment of the law. And now he wasn't, and now he still, after losing, wasn't going back to the law. The court had basically said, you have to listen to Congress. And he's saying, no, I won't listen to Congress. And I've just now found here the case in 19, it was in 1946 that Congress addressed the idea about the problems raised by a national emergency strike and lockout and a proposal that the president be given powers to seize plans to avert shutdown where the health and safety of the nation was endangered was thoroughly thought through by Congress in 1946 and rejected. So it was that it was upon that that the Supreme Court was making its case that that in other words, Long before this steel issue, six years before the steel issue, Congress had thought this through and rejected the idea of giving the president power. The reason Taft-Hartley was better also is it allowed for a period of congressionally managed collective bargaining between owners and steel. And that was supposed to basically protect the bargaining. It wouldn't come down on one side or the other. Um, But by seizing the steel plants, essentially... Truman had come down on the side of labor. So the all throughout June and July, the steel plants are not running. And we've heard the Secretary of Defense go, go nuts. And the, the closures get worse. Uh, the Chrysler Corporation shut down all its Michigan auto, plant, uh, auto plants. The steel shortages forced the Army to shut down its largest shell-making plant in St. Louis. Canneries stopped being able to you put the food, put food in cans. Uh, here's one article. Housewives will have to add a little more to their food bills because of the nationwide steel strike. Brokers who help move fruits and vegetables from farms to canneries said yesterday the strike has reduced the number of cans available. The canneries cannot take what the growers are offering, and the vicious cycle of losses is on its way. So finally, in the end, the steel companies reached an agreement at the end of July after Truman called them to the White House and demanded an agreement. The unions basically got a wage hike, and the steel bosses didn't have to um, give in on a key provision the union's been asking for. Here's an account of what the final agreement was like in the Chicago Daily Tribune. There had been agreement on the economic terms, pay, vacations, holidays, and the like, for some weeks. The stickler was Murray's demand that the union shop, which would have forced every man who holds a job in a steel mill to pay dues to him, Philip Murray was the um, the union negotiator. And so the idea here was, the stickler was about whether when you go to work at a union shop, you had to pay dues to the union. On this, the, the companies refused to yield at every conference. They did not yield in the settlement. Under the terms of the settlement, a new employee must apply for membership in the union where he is employed. However, he may withdraw from membership simply by notifying his employer in writing. After 15 days, 
but not more than 30 days of employment. That was the management proposal. The strike was settled as soon as Murray gave up this demand for an unqualified union shop. So essentially, this was a way to to lock in membership, and the union bosses didn't want it. I mean, the union bosses wanted it. The actual bosses didn't. This has been a debate that still goes on in a slightly different form. Truman did not come out smelling rosy. His original motives were questioned for seizing the steel mills and not using the Taft-Hartley Act, and also his decision not to resolve the bill after months being in the strike and all of the damage going on to the U.S. war effort overseas. But here's the way old Truman wrote about it, and notice the reference to the fact that he did not ask Congress for a declaration of war in his original decision to, to take emergency action in Korea. Because you'll hear something in Truman's justification for what he did that will sound maybe familiar to the current state of threats uh, in this age of terrorism. So here is Truman writing in his memoirs about his justification, even though he lost six to three in the Supreme Court. Whatever the six justices of the Supreme Court meant by their differing opinions about the constitutional powers of the president, he must always act in a national emergency. It is not very realistic for the justices to say that comprehensive power shall be available to the president only when a war has been declared or when the country has been invaded. Aha, when a war has been declared. We live in an age when hostilities begin without polite exchanges of diplomatic notes. There are no longer sharp distinctions between combatants and non-combatants, between military targets and the sanctuary of civilian areas. Nor can we separate the economic facts from the problems of defense and security. So that line, there are no longer sharp distinctions between combatants and non-combatants, I mean, that's right out of post-9-11 America. Anyway, in this day and age, the defense of the nation means more than building an army, navy, and air force. It is the job of the entire resources of the nation. The president, who is commander-in-chief and who represents the interests of all the people, must be able to act at all times to meet any sudden threat to the nation's security. A wise president will always work with Congress, but when Congress fails to act or is unable to act in a crisis, the president, under the Constitution, must use his powers to safeguard the nation. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistle Stop. Send us an email to whistlestop at slate.com. Or better, leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank, who let me get this one in late, and I'm really grateful. Our executive producer of Panoply Podcast is Steve Lichtai, and our chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Whistle Stop is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at www.panoply.fm. Our Whistle Stop Crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who would never let America be defenseless against foreign foes. Thanks also to Izzy Road for joining me in reading through all the mountains of PDF clips so that I could stay on top of all of them. I'll be back in two weeks with another edition of Whistle Stop. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Mm-hmm.